Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the bombastic Bob Weck, the magnificent Michael Beck Esperum, and the charming Carla Everson. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with JT and Senda, and we are going to talk about introducing new players to role-playing games. Before we dive into that topic, though, we're going to ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question, which is, what was an aspect of role-playing games that you struggled with most as a newbie when you first came to gaming? JT, I'm going to start with you. So the thing I struggled with most was playing a role. I was good at gaming. And I, I knew how to roll dice and do the math and build characters and all that. And they weren't really characters. They were a collection of numbers at that time in my life. But I was also 10 years old <laughs> and just had the mentor red box set to, to run off of, right? I didn't have a mentor. Mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't have somebody to teach me, here's what role playing is. I just knew that this was a different kind of game. So I played it like a different kind of game. Honestly, I was the... I hate using this phrase, but I was the most experienced player in my group at 10 years old by like two weeks. <laughs> that matters when you're 10. Yeah, yeah. It does. It does. Yes. So yeah, my Cub Scout pack, I, I got the, the red box before anybody else by like two or three weeks. So I had read it before everybody else. So I was the game master because I knew more about what I was doing. <laughs> Question mark. So anyway, yeah, the storytelling aspect, the being creative beyond, ooh, that's a cool-looking monster. I'm going to put it in this room in the maze. So yeah, that's what I struggled with most. You know, looking back, of course, we had a lot of fun, so we were doing it right, but we weren't really playing a role-playing game. We were playing a kill monsters in a random maze game. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I I was not doing well in the role-playing aspect of things. Yeah, I think that's something you kind of, especially when you're that young, it takes a little bit to learn those parts of things. Oh, absolutely. And I had even really explored my own creativity, like my solo creativity, let alone doing something creative in a collaborative manner or shared manner, which is a whole nother level of creativity that you kind of got to know yourself better to know how to share with others Mm -hmm. in that aspect. It's hard to explain or describe, but I I was just barely getting into my own creative writing processes back then. So, (laughs) What about you, Senda? Yeah, I was thinking about this one, and it's really interesting because um, I know that sometimes I can come across as somewhat gregarious, and I certainly was this times like 10 (laughs) in college. This is like the calmer (laughs) version of Senda. But the really funny thing was... I was so excited to play and I had no idea what I was doing. And and I played my first game in college. That's why that's why I was mentioning college. But I was like really, really anxious about sharing the conceptualizing of being in character and like actually playing a character and being comfortable with that at the table in front of other people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because I had been writing, like I, I had actually the stuff that JT was talking about. I had, I had been writing chapter books since I was like ten, and I, you know, had been reading everything that I could possibly get my hands on, writing my own books, you know, millions of of half finished drafts. Not anything that I would bring up again. Not anything I think I can even open because they're all file formats that are so old that you can't even open them. But <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I was doing so much of that. And then I was confronted with now do it in front of other people. And I was like, 
I don't know. This is like a really private thing that I just do by myself to get into a character's headspace. Like, is it going to be okay if I do that here? Are people going to think I'm weird? Like that kind of stuff, right? So for me, I actually had to get over, I think, I went on a journey of um, like, oh, it's just safer to just play like, ooh, by the numbers and combat stuff, even though in my head I'm like having this experience <laughs> to being able to actually like really engage people on that level, which is how I love to play now. <laughs> and what about you? You know, mine is very similar to you, Senda, in that this is probably hard for anyone who has played with me in the last 10 years to believe. But I had trouble speaking up for myself. I was very quiet at the table to start with because I didn't know anybody. And while my friend Scott has put it succinctly that I am not shy, I'm guarded. So if I don't know people, I tend to hold back a lot. And it was even worse when I was a teenager. And I started in high school. Like, hey, we've got the, we've got the gamut here. We've got JT who started in grade school, <laughs> me who started yeah. in high school. And I started in college. There you go. Freshman year of college, the first thing that we did started a D&D game. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> great. It's great. But I, I do remember those days of like, there was a lot of the game that was happening inside my head that wasn't necessarily coming out of my mouth to be shared with the other people at the table because I wasn't sure if it would be received well. I wasn't sure if I was going to get made fun of for all of these things, you know, so it was like, you know, very like, I'm very excited about this game. I want to be here at the table, but I'm not necessarily saying the things I want to say or should say and kind of waiting to be called on and all of that. Hilariously, I was literally drawing a fan web comic of my D&D game, <laughs> my character in my D&D game. I was even fine writing about it and sharing that stuff. I was anxious about doing it at the table. <laughs> Very funny. Basically, I'm with you, Hinge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving into the main topic, as we've just said, we all had to start somewhere. And I thought it would be a good idea to talk about some of our tips and tricks for introducing new players to role-playing games. And the three of us have very different tastes and styles, and all of this can impact how you introduce somebody to role-playing games. And so I'm going to start with my first question is, what do you consider to be the most important thing when introducing a new player? Senda, I'm actually going to start with you on this one. It's really interesting. I have been very lucky to introduce a number of people that I know to role-playing games. Early on, I did it very badly <laughs> and learned a lot of things not to do, right? Fortunately, more recently, I've gotten actually pretty good at it. And so the thing that I think is the most important is teaching people um, that whatever idea they have is really cool. And to speak to, I think, the issue that you and I both had mm -hmm. as new players, right? So to me, the thing that I want to do at the table is I want to make new players feel like their ideas are valuable, not embarrassing always interesting and like, and I really want to hear them. And to me, that's so key to have that really engaging experience to begin with, where people really do care about what you want in the game, what kind of experience you're having, or like what your idea is. And I think it's especially important for shy or guarded players, but really for everybody to just get everyone kind of in the space that maybe from a work perspective, they associate with like brainstorming the like no bad ideas place, right? Where like 
everybody's just kind of on board because that's kind of how you get that creative collaboration moving and getting that up and running for the first time with people who are not experienced at like sitting down and doing it, I think is sort of the key to making a game happen and to making sure that it's a good experience for everybody. JT, what are your thoughts on the most important thing to consider? So relaxation, uh, very similar to what Cinda was saying, like just chill out, relax. We're here to have fun. If you're having fun doing the thing, you're doing it right. Who cares if we're following the rules or not? Yeah, you you, kind of want to use the rules as a framework. You don't have to have system mastery out of the gate. I don't expect that. I mean, a lot of people are like, I don't know the rules. I can't play this game. It's like, no, no, no. I know the rules. I'll guide you through it. And that leads into a question we'll be asking or answering later. But the rules are not the final arbiter on what kind of fun we have. Uh, like I said, it's just a framework to structure the approach at how we're going to have fun. So just relax, chill. Don't worry about the rules. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll learn you up as we're going through the process. And I try to cheerlead as much as I can. Like if somebody yeah. has a wild idea because they're not constrained by the rules as presented because they haven't read them or haven't read all of them or whatever, I try to understand the intent behind what they're trying to do. And then when I once I get that my head wrapped around that, then I will be like, that's a great idea. Let, let's roll some dice and see what happens. How about you, Ange? What's the most important thing when you introduce a new player? For me, I want to know what they're interested in. Why is that player willing to give this a try? What is it about role-playing games that they want to find out more of? I especially think knowing what genre they're interested in can be super helpful. Because like, if somebody's not into traditional you know, role-playing game style fantasy, then D&D is probably not the right choice. Or conversely, if they're not into Star Wars, rolling up a Star Wars game for them is not going to get their interest. So you want to know what the player is interested in. And of course, this is going to vary depending upon whether you're introducing one player into a group of experienced players or several new players to the concept at all. I think those things are kind of the most important thing for me to figure out. Most of the kids who are in my team D&D game had never played D&D before. They all knew what it was, but none of them had played. So right there, they had an interest in what it was and were all on board to play in that style of fantasy, even if there was an anime flavor to most of their fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally doable. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The next question is, is, do you have a favorite system to use when you introduce new players? JT, let's go with you first. So we had the question lined up you know, prior to recording, and I really struggled with answering this one because I wanted a system. It needs to be a system that I'm very comfortable with and have good system mastery of. That way I can be the right person to teach the rules in the game to the new players. And I, I waffled through lots of different systems. It also needs to be one that I enjoy running. I originally went to Fate because it's super simple, it's linguistic in its rule set, you know, with aspects and all that. However, I don't enjoy running Fate because I do not like (laughs) compels as the game master. Is the player compel me all day long? But for some reason, I've got a mental block as the game master compelling my players to, to do things that is built into their character feels abusive to me. I feel like I'm stepping on toes. So I don't do Fate at least not as a game master. So I finally settled on Savage Worlds because you can do almost anything with it genre-wise. That way 
I'm not like, oh, you picked the genre I don't have a game for. Well, I've got Savage Worlds. I've got the game for whatever genre. It's simple. It's straightforward. Their skill list is very minimal. The attribute list is very minimal. It's set up so you can do some really cool things with it as the players. And you can do some really gonzo things with it if the dice cooperate. If you if you get enough exploding dice and get enough raises, things can go really wild, which players always love. I mean, it's just one of those things. So in that it increases their enthusiasm and enjoyment of the game, even if they're brand new to it. Especially like in Savage Worlds, you get those explosions, you get some serious raises on a roll, and everyone at the table is suddenly super oh, excited yes. and super oh into God. it. And like... You know, it's it's so hard to just n- the player to not be just completely absorbed in being super excited about that moment with everyone else at the table. Absolutely. What about you, Senda? What systems do you turn to? This is going to sound very funny. I've actually had really good luck with All Out of Bubblegum, <laughs> which is pretty much as light of a system as you can have and still maybe call it a system. <laughs> I've played it in a whole bunch of settings in different ways, and um, I think the reason that I like it, and this is definitely a personal preference thing, is because the specific style of role-playing games that I am in for is usually very focused on story and interaction and role-play and less focused on the mechanical interaction of the game. I really love playing games where the mechanical interaction supports all that storytelling and stuff, However, if I am trying to get someone just interested in the creative collaboration of storytelling, reducing the load in terms of what they feel like they even need to keep track of is great. And then secondarily, when five new people sit down at your table and you hand them all four pieces of bubblegum or whatever it is. No, it's six pieces of bubblegum. Eight? Eight pieces? I don't even remember. The rules are literally two sentences and I don't remember. But anyway, (laughs) you literally put bubblegum in front of everybody and then they're like, oh, wow, what's this? And they're like, well, when you're when you're out of bubblegum, then all you can do is be amazingly kick ass, right? Like nice. The inevitability that as you play, your character will get wilder and wilder and cooler and cooler and you have to come up with weirder and weirder ways to solve problems a it gets people engaged right because they're like i want to dial a phone number and i'm like roll your dice and they're like oh Oh, no no. (laughs) as it's getting harder and harder to do mundane things then they have to come up with wild ways to do things like turning a prius into a spaceship (laughs) cool stuff happens And people tend to get very engaged with that. But it's also a game that because it pushes wild ideas, it very much creates that atmosphere of like no wrong answers because there are literally no wrong (laughs) answers. Like, can you do it? Just roll the dice. See if you can do it. And if you fail, it's, you know, the dice said you fail. No one's going to tell you that you can't make a spaceship out of a Prius because you might be able to. I don't know. (laughs) Especially if you're all out of bubblegum. Exactly. Or you're low on bubblegum. I mean... That game has been very successful for me. That game is definitely also a one-shot. I think that one-shots are a pretty good way to get people into the hobby because you're not asking them to commit to a long game. Yes. And even as a one-shot, it is a game that I can commit to running for a two-hour slot instead of a four-hour slot. So again, shorter time commitment. So when I've I've actually used it to introduce people to role-playing games, even at like board game days, because I can run a game of All Out of Bubblegum in the same amount of time that it takes those other people over there to run their actual board game. So then we can all switch around again when we're done and I'm not running something for four hours and that's the thing you've committed to for the whole game day or whatever, right? Like, no, it's one of the things you're doing. 
yeah, that one's been pretty successful for me. I think there are a lot of good options. That's just one that I've used to great effect several times because it is very off the wall, inevitably, like hacking into the phone system to make a simple phone call or something by the end of it. And it's it gets very wild. What's your favorite, Ange? Again, this to me goes back to what the player is interested in. If this is somebody who is, and especially since we are coming up on the release of the D&D movie, this is probably going to be happening <laughs> quite a bit in the month of April and beyond. People are going to be like, what is this D&D thing? I want to try it. So if somebody who has never had any role-playing game experience expresses interest in D&D, I'm going to pull out 5e. I'm going to bring out D&D. I'm, we're going we're gonna to play a you know, very basic, low-level game, you know, one shot, let them experience it and figure out what's going on. If they are not interested in D&D, I have had decent experience with some of the more, what's, how do I want to phrase this? Some of the Power by Apocalypse games that are very genre-specific, they're easy to understand. Monster of the Week, you are hunting monsters. What type of character are you hunting monsters? And like anyone who like likes that monster hunting concept, I can say it's like Buffy or Supernatural or X-Files, and they know exactly what I mean. And that allows them that latch into the game to try and understand who their character is and what their character do. I do think regardless of the system you're using, it helps to A, as JT mentioned at the beginning of his answer here, having system mastery as a GM helps a lot when you are introducing new players because it lets you know how to shove all of the minutia out of the way and just let that player know what they need to do in that moment for that cool thing they are trying to do. Yep. You know, yeah, there's all these intricate other things you could do, but I'm not going to go into explaining them. I'm just going to tell you, okay, you need to roll 2d6s right now. One of them is your wild die, because we're playing Savage Worlds, and the skill you're trying to use uses a d6. So roll 2d6s. Oh, okay, I can do that. You have to give them the rules incrementally, but you still have to make the game itself feel cool and interesting. So what are some things to be careful of or to avoid completely when you're trying to do this? Senda's making a face, so I'm going to start with her. <laughs> yeah, I'm making a face because um, one of my early attempts at GMing before I understood what style of GMing worked for me <laughs> involved introducing two of my friends for the first time to role-playing games. And the end result is that neither of them will play role-playing games with me, even though both of them now play role-playing oh, games. Oh no. And I'm like, but I'm good at this now, I promise. <laughs> I had a podcast and everything. I mean, it'd be one thing if they had like, did some, no, no, this is not for me and turned away from role-playing games forever. But the fact that they play them and now they just won't play them with you is... Ouch. Like, it took them like five years to get over it and then now they play with other people Aww. and not me. So, ouch, right? Like, so, so things that I can and speak to and part of this gets a little bit blended for me because a lot of it was things that I look back on as massive GMing mistakes. But I think the most important thing from my perspective and the thing that my mistakes, the situation that my GMing mistakes created was that it created, you know, a railroad situation, which meant they didn't have a lot of agency. And a really good way to make sure that someone who is new to the game is not going to be interested in continuing to play it is by telling them no to their ideas. <laughs> and they're like, I want to do this. And you're like, you can't do that. And just shutting them down. That's a really good way <laughs> to make sure that your friends 
don't play role playing <laughs> games with yeah. you. Don't do that. Um, so um, don't do, I mean, don't do that generally. But when you do that to a new player, I think it um, it makes them feel like they did something wrong or bad or like they don't understand how it works and it's too overwhelming. It is exponentially worse to shut down a new a brand new player than it is to shut down a long term player who's going to be like, what the heck? Why would that person do that to me? <laughs> like, I know what I'm doing. But someone who's new at the table, getting their ideas shut down excludes them from that collaborative creation, which is what we're trying to build together. It specifically like shuts them down and pushes them out of that space, which means they're probably not having a lot of fun. Yeah. Because now they're kind of being excluded and they don't know what they can say that's going to be okay versus what they're going to say that's going to be shut down. Now, my GM issue was that it was a railroad, and that's why I was saying no. Oh. Like that's, I wasn't just mean saying no. I was not letting them out of the box canyon, right? Like, And that's a different problem. Don't do that, maybe, unless that's what... I, anyway, I have a whole podcast episodes about this. I'm not going to get into the specific details of like box canyon sort of play, and maybe that works for you, and that's fine. I don't think that it is a good scenario for new players to get into a situation in which they don't understand where the walls are and they're constantly running into them, right? That's what I would say. I think don't create walls, unnecessary walls. Say yes whenever you can. Railroads are bad, but sometimes having a linear storyline can work. That Yeah, that's different. You as a GM <laughs> need to know when to go, okay, what are you trying to do with this? You know, rather than shutting them down, try and figure out what their goal actually is. That can be especially helpful with new players because new players, they don't know the etiquette and they don't know the format and the tropes of what a role playing game is. So they may either not try enough or they may try too much. They don't know where the boundaries are at because there's boundaries, but they're, they're, they're kind of soft padded wall bumper boundaries. Maybe padded walls is the wrong metaphor, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? They're, they're, they're soft, cushy boundaries and you can push up against them and move them and all that. but. New players, they have no sense of what's allowed, what's not allowed, what's encouraged, what's discouraged, things of that nature. So if you shut down their first idea, and all of a sudden they think no idea is good, and that can be problematic. Yeah, exactly. And needless to say, that game did not continue. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really glad that those two people both play role-playing games now, because I thought that they would really enjoy them, and they do. And I wish that they would play with me. <laughs> But we all go through a phase of not being the bestest GMs. I like want to reach out to these people and go, hey, play with Senda. She's really cool now. I promise. <laughs> I may take you up on that. <laughs> what about you, JT? What, are, what do you think some things to be careful and avoid are? So this bit of advice is based off something I actually did. So uh, uh, do as I say, not as I did. Uh, and I've learned from this lesson and have not repeated it. I forget even what game we were playing. It was a modern urban fantasy type setting. Could have been Dresden Files. I really don't recall. But I had one, two, three experienced players and a brand new player. Never played role-playing games before. It was Dresden Files because I remember the new player, she had mentioned she had read most of the books. So she was familiar with the world, the setting, all that good stuff. So, so great. That's why we picked Dresden Files to ease the on-ramp into role-playing because we didn't have to teach her the world. We just had to get her the structure of how role-playing happens. And I decided they all had a common NPC and I decided the NPC was going to call one of them on the phone and say, oh my God, I need help. Gather the troops and come help. 
kind of deal is I typically do. I didn't really care who answered the phone. So I rolled a die, I rolled a D4 and it, it came up her number. So I was like, Hey, new player, your phone rings. What do you do? And just deer in headlights look came from her. <laughs> she had no clue what to do. The random die roll. That's fine. But I should have excluded her from the randomness. So I could have picked a more veteran seasoned uh, role player just to kind of set an example, to demonstrate, to show what the game master player interactions look like. And then the NPC could have said, oh, can you call so-and-so and have them show up too? And the other so-and-so would be another player, not the new player. And then that could demonstrate player interaction with each other, like like two players role-playing while the game master steps aside and really does a whole lot of nothing other than spectate uh, for a little bit. I call those breathing moments. Yeah, with those breathing moments. Yes, I totally screwed that up and picked randomly picked the brand new player, and she had no clue how to do this. Once the gears in her mind stopped grinding and she realized what I was asking of her, she actually did a fantastic job, but I screwed up and put the spotlight directly on her out of the gate and shouldn't have done that. How about you, Ange? Well, I was actually going to mention something about Spotlight as well. I think it is important as a GM with new player or players at the table to be very careful about your Spotlight management. You want to make sure the experienced players aren't taking all of the cool stuff, but you want to be very gentle about putting that Spotlight on the new players because they may have that deer in the headlights moment. They may not be sure how to respond. So you want to make sure you swing back to them and check in with them, but don't linger too long or force the situation if they're struggling. There's a thing that happens with new players that I think kind of frustrates or confounds a lot of GMs. The player doesn't look like they're doing anything. The player doesn't, they're, they're very quiet. They're not super engaged. They're not really stepping forward at all with their character. You kind of have to go to them for everything. And then afterwards, the game is done. You think it's a disaster because this player really didn't do a whole lot. And then you ask them, did you have a good time? And the response is, yes, when can we play again? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, because as, as Senda and I said at the very beginning, there's a lot going on in your head. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of labor going on inside your head, even if it's not coming outside of your mouth. It's important to like, understand that aspect of new players at the table, especially if it's a table with just one or two new players. I've had this so many times, you know, I'm, I'm having this, these anxious moments because like I've got a player at the table, like they said they were excited to be here. They were super excited to pick their character and now they're, they're not really doing a lot and I don't know what's going on and okay, okay, well... You know, if they never play a role-playing game again, I guess it's my fault. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, they're just like, that was amazing. I had so much fun. They run off and I hear them telling their dad how awesome a time it was. And I'm just like, are they playing the same game I was? Right. Were they at my table? <laughs> yeah. Did we have the same experience? Right. Yeah. One of the kids in my teen D&D game is, is she is very, very quiet. Very quiet, you know, like there's been a couple of times where I've given her a ride home and it's a very quiet ride back to her <laughs> house as I'm trying to like leave the door open for conversation, but not feeling like I'm forcing her into it. And then we get to her house and I'm like, well, okay, I hope you had fun. And she's like, yeah, 
it was amazing. I can't wait for us to play again. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad. But we just drove all the way here in silence. <laughs> <laughs> just be aware that there's a lot going on inside the head. So just be warned that they may not be engaging as much at the table that first time as you think they should or would be, and that they still may be having a good time. So just be mindful of that. So do you have any tips for keeping a new player interested without overwhelming them? What about you, JT? Try to pick a simpler system. You're uh, all out of bubblegum style games or <laughs> you know, starting there and moving your way up in complexity, maybe through Fate and Savage Worlds. And that's kind of where I would top out. But if somebody shows up at your doorstep and says, I found this role-playing book at a used bookstore and I read it and I don't understand it and it looks really cool. Will you run it for me? And they hand you champions. <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe you talk them out of champions and into masks or mutants and masterminds or something a little more simple. But if they're dead set on playing your hero system or your GURPS or your Pathfinders or anything along those lines, the more complex games. All right. If you're equipped to teach them the game, you've got system mastery or you've got a great understanding of that really complex game. Cool. Start them with the simple rules first. Okay. You're in a fight against some skeletons. You have a sword. As Game Master, you're going to ignore the half damage because you're using slashing weapons against skeletons. If they say they do six points of damage, they do six points of damage, you move on. Maybe you start them with zombies because zombies don't have that particular aspect to them, right? And all you do is you say you roll a d20, you add this one number off your character sheet, you will always find that number right here on your character sheet. So you're teaching them how to use the tool of the character sheet as you go along. You keep it super simple. If two players happen to be flanking a zombie, you don't bring up flanking rules. Now, you're not allowed to use the flanking rules either against the players until they know the rule. Maybe the second or third fight, you're like, oh, hey, guys, you're actually flanking that skeleton or that zombie or that whatever. That means you get plus two on the hit roll or advantage or whatever the rule set is. And you slide in a new rule, a new a new condition. And you, you kind of slowly on-ramp them into the game system. I love structuring introductory adventures to where there's a reason behind it, but it's typically just a dungeon crawl, like you're escaping a prison through underground tunnels or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I set up different encounters to reveal different aspects of the rule set in each encounter. And by the time they reach daylight, they've got, oh, I don't know, let's say 50% of the rules exposed to them or more. Like a video game tutorial. Yeah, there you go. It's like a video game tutorial, and I'm just letting them learn as we go. And if you know, I decide I'm going to teach them flank in encounter four, and they happen to accidentally flank somebody in encounter three, I'll bring it up then. Like, hey guys, great strategy. You get a bonus for this. So that's kind of my my uh, keep it simple, even in the complex games, and introduce the complexity like one bite at a time. I think one thing I would add on to that is if they do something that is not smart be gentle with them yes like for example the first time i ran my nieces through D, they came to a tunnel that branched in three directions and their response was like well there's three of us let's split up and explore the tunnels and i'm just like oh no no no, no." i'm like guys that's not a good strategy and they're like why not we'd get it done faster and i'm like okay you just had a fight with two goblins outside and Belfius only has two hit points right now. And they both look at their sister Lorelai and they're like, 
Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of stories out there about GMs punishing players for being stupid. That's a bad idea anyway, but it's an especially bad idea when you've got newbies at your table. Yeah, in that in that case, you're not punishing stupidity. You're punishing ignorance and inexperience. And I'm not saying ignorance in a bad connotation. I actually... I don't think ignorance is a bad aspect of any in anybody, except for maybe willful ignorance, but that's another topic. But ignorance just means you haven't been taught that yet. Mm-hmm. And these are teaching moments. So don't punish somebody because they don't realize it's a bad idea. Teach them that it's a bad idea without being punitive in that teaching moment. What about you, Senda? What tips do you have for keeping new players interested? This is a little bit interesting because, as I said earlier, I play a lot of games that are very story forward and character focused these days, which means they tend to be lighter on systems, which means that while I agree with everything that you and JT just said, it is not usually my experience (laughs) of what I need to teach at the table because there just aren't Mm -hmm. the mechanics are not usually the largest hurdle. So I think the thing that I would say is it's teaching that it's a space of collaboration and that even if the spotlight turns to you, if you don't know what to do, we're all actually there to support each other and build on each other's ideas. And it's something we're going to do together. So if I turn the spotlight on someone and they go, ah, right, like I'll be like, cool, it was really neat when you did that other thing. Can you do something like that here? And I might give them instead of the vast sandbox of infinite options, sometimes what you can do to help people with the what do I do in this situation is bring in the walls a little bit so that it's a little bit clearer what the path forward is without creating box canyon walls that don't allow them to make a decision, right? Like that's the key. Um, but sometimes sometimes you can bring the focus in a little bit, like what is the thing that you want to do? And they will tell you something. And then you can say, cool, what is the coolest way you can imagine your character doing that? So sometimes it's about leading people into the creativity that they might be nervous to express at the table. And a lot of it for me, whether we're talking slowly learning a bunch of rules or we're talking about learning kind of the social dynamics of lighter game system, for me, it's about creating a place where a person feels safe to say their idea or feels safe to say, I don't know what to do here. Please help me. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like. Right. And to model that behavior with the experienced players at the table or as the GM to model that for the entire table if they're all new, which I totally do too. One of the things I really like to do then in that situation, and I'll do it early on when it's like really low pressure, right? And it's like a low pressure thing, is if I'm trying to model like being comfortable just asking for input from other people when I'm, you know, losing the creative thread or whatever that is, I'll source the table for stuff early on really early on when it doesn't matter very much, right? Like when it's like you're walking up to this person's house and they have a beautiful garden. What's something that's in this garden? Stuff that is like really low stakes. Like there's no wrong. There's literally no wrong answers. I mean, I guess maybe you could tell me that there's a hive of killer wasps and we might be going off on a different genre entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Probably you're not going to say that, but it gives people the immediate in In the same way that you can do baby steps for mechanical rules, you can also do baby steps for building trust with the rest of the people at the table and um, feeling confident about speaking up and having creative ideas. I like that. Improvising rules. Yes. (laughs) I love our different 
aspects and angles of coming at things, right? Because I'm the crunchy engineer, yeah. mechanical, <laughs> yeah. math, math kind of guy, right? Yeah. And everything you said is absolutely valid and spot on, even though you're not saying the same thing I am. We're covering the, a yeah. broad range of different, yeah. get people comfortable, right? Yeah. If you do both of those things in a crunchy game, like you will be off and running. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I am firmly of the belief that it almost, almost doesn't matter what system you use to introduce a new player to the game. As long as you as the GM are comfortable running it and the player is interested in the genre and game that that brings to the table. As long as you have those two things, you can do anything. The one final thing I would probably add to keeping a new player interested, keep the door open for running sessions in the future. Yeah. Because you don't you don't create an addict for gaming unless you keep feeding yep. the beast. <laughs> yep. You don't necessarily have to do a full-blown campaign right out of the gate because one-shots are a great way for new players to get their feet wet and figure out what they like. But you want to make sure that those opportunities to play again in the future are there for them because that's what really gets people interested in gaming is they have that ongoing continuity in their head. It may not come out at the table, but they have it in their head. (laughs) More stuff just happening in our heads all the time. Yes. It really is a lot of what happens with gaming. This is why, slight tangent, this is one of the reasons why I love RPGs as a hobby and it has filled my life for the last 35 years Mm -hmm. is because I can keep playing the game away from the table because it's still (laughs) happening in my head. Oh, man, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, There are games I've played that I've lived in that character. We only play every two weeks and I spend a lot of time in that two weeks. Like living in that space. Oh man. That's why I'm glad we got things like Discord and Slot today. Cause like if that that brilliant thing hits me, I gotta talk about it. I gotta. Yep. Yep. So I'll hit either Slack or Discord depending on the group and scenario and start typing like a maniac. I have so many character playlists <laughs> on Spotify. <laughs> we'll move into heading out of here. So for final thoughts, I'm gonna say Remember that this is a community, even if that community is just you and the the four or five other players that come play at your table, it is a community and getting the new player to be part of that community is a big part of getting them really into the hobby. Any last thoughts from you guys? Yeah, I would agree with you and just add on that even beyond just this sort of large overwatch specter of the hobby, yeah, bunny ears. There's stuff that all of us sort of take for granted about the way that we play games um, and make assumptions about, about the way that we play games and the way that we've always played with that group that we play with all the time and or that one house rule that we always use in that one game, yada, 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 right? Like there's stuff that is really so ingrained in all of us as gamers that we may not necessarily realize that we're doing it. And some of that stuff to a new person who has no concept of how these games work at all, you have to remember to slow down mm-hmm. and be willing to talk through some of those things that you usually do by assumption and work through by assumption. So you have to really slow yourself down as a moderator for that game or a facilitator and remember that you have to explain every step along the way because we carry a lot of assumptions. And some of them are like universal gaming assumptions. And some of them are specific to your table. And there's a whole range in between being aware of those things that you have as expectations and being able to tell people about them or explain them as you're going into the game is so important. 
Because if you don't have the ability to do that, and then the new player sits down at the table and the rest of you look at them like they just turned their head around backwards because they broke one of the unspoken rules. <laughs> you didn't tell them and you created that bad experience for someone who's new and sitting down. So you have to be explicit about all those things that make up a game. And some of that stuff is the game itself. And some of that stuff is how we play the game. And some of that stuff is how we sit down at the table together and the assumptions that we just have because we've been doing it for forever. Yeah. Um, but like our assumptions about how we come to the table and how we talk to each other and sit and who orders the pizza and, you know, all of that stuff. That's me. I order the pizza. You order the pizza? I order the pizza. We always feed ourselves, but, you know, <laughs> I usually end up feeding everybody. That's a lie. Same, same. Any last words from you, JT? My grandfather did not tell me how to be a good man once I grew up. He showed me how to be a good man. Corollary to that? If you're a player at a table with a new player, or even the game master at the table with the new player, don't just tell them how to be a role player. Exemplify that. Show them how. They're going to follow your lead because if they're a brand new player, our hobby, our profession, this drive to do role playing games is. <laughs> weird. It is. It really it's, is. It's not like it. It is. It's not like Monopoly, right? It's not your typical family board game or even your, your more advanced board games. It, it's this odd amalgamation of so many different things that a new person may have heard of Dungeons and Dragons and knows that you roll some dice and you have like little minis on a map and end of story. That's about all they know, right? There's, there's some math involved <laughs> and I got a little painted dude. I live a good exemplary play style and they will follow you because they don't know any better. Of course, if you show them how to do it poorly, they're going to follow you because they don't know any better. So... Do well and do well by them. And then they will be somebody else's problem when they play somebody else's game. Yep. True, <laughs> true. But that's how we did it in this other group. Yeah. yeah. So moving out of here, this show is fun by the Gnome Stew Patreon. YouTube can be able to Patreon backer by following the Patreon link from the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the awesome player Clonomatic. Got a great player at your table and wish you had more players like them? Sign up for the trial run of our APC, the awesome player Clonomatic. Results are not guaranteed, especially if clones are made of clones. A copy of a copy is always going to be uh, iffy. If you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Yeah, on Bonus Experience, you can hear Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity, while also sharing some of the dumbest humor that gaming has to offer. And I feel like there might still be onion sandwiches in there, just because I personally feel like that's not a bit that you can let go, no matter who's doing the show. <laughs> Sorry, you asked me to read it, and I'm going to ad-lib these, because that's how I do it. <laughs> if I ask you to read it, I fully expect a bespoke ad for a show, okay? Yes, always bespoke. <laughs> you can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Is there anything else you guys want to give a shout out to today? Yes. If you have a new player at your table, you should check out Improv for Gamers, the second edition, because a lot of the games in there are really good ways to just get people working together at the table and like start talking to each other and throwing ideas around. And if you play one of those games and then you start playing a role playing game, you will have already established a culture of creative collaboration. Like magic. They're great <laughs> games. You should check it out. JT, what about you? 
So I'm going to throw out a tool that is useful for pretty much any modern game. I, I don't think it'll work too well for historical. It'll work for like modern through future, even far future stuff. It's randomnamegenerator.com. There's some hyphens in there. They go where you think they go. In other <laughs> words, random-name-generator.com. And it's more than just random names. It actually generates like full-blown profiles, like where they work, what is their phone number, what is their email, what is their social security number. There's like a, a AI created <laughs> headshot. What? Yeah. Yeah. There's like 31 different cultures and nationalities you can pick from. So you can get like people from all over the world and you can generate all male, all female mix. I think you can only do 10 at a time, but yeah, if, if you need like just baseline for NPCs in a modern or future, or even near historical, random-name-generator.com. It's more than just random names. It's awesome. That's awesome. How about you, Ange? Do you have anything to shout out? So as I mentioned, one of my go-to games is Monster of the Week. And recently, Evil Hat did a crowdfunding thing for a new book to go with Monster of the Week. But as part of that, they also released a shiny new hardcover edition of the game. And I just wanted to give that a shout out because it's a really good game and it's going to be coming in hardcover and it's shiny. And so if you don't have it, or even if you have it and you want the shiny hardcover, go ahead to Evil Hat and check it out. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. Boy, we're really Evil Hat focused. <laughs> yes. Like two out of three here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they put out some good stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, on occasion they, they hit the mark. No, I'm kidding. They, actually, I, I love what? almost everything they've done. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, with that in mind, do you think we're experienced enough to keep around to introduce new players to gaming, or do we need to get tossed in the stew? I will throw myself in the stew to prevent the new player from tripping, stumbling, and falling in on their own. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the correct answer right there. 